What's up? And welcome back. This is the sportsball.com podcast. I'm your host, Jackson Williams, and oh man, it feels good to be back and saying that intro again. Um, I need to get some intro music at some point, but why not keep it classic for the first episode here in season two? Now I know what you're thinking. Season two? What was season one? Yes, yes, this can all be very confusing, but let me explain what's up and why the podcast has been on hiatus. So I started the podcast midway through the NBA season last year, and it was a lot of fun, but it took a lot of time. I prepared a lot each week, and I'm not totally sure how this happened, but once summer vacation started, I totally lost all motivation to do anything related to the site, from blog posts to podcasting. I just couldn't do it. I couldn't sit down and like work on something outside of like actual work for more than like 30 minutes at a time. Um, but don't worry, this isn't some depressing tale of depression or anxiety or something like that. I was just busy and using my creative energy and juju somewhere else. I got a job, yes, a real job, and that's very exciting. I was running social media accounts, writing slideshows, quizzes, and producing ads for various forms of social media. Uh, and that's, that all took a lot of brain power, perhaps even more than being a full-time college student does, which was shocking to say the least. Um, but now that summer vacation's over, back in the swing of being a full-time student, which, as it turns out, still isn't as hard as it was in high school and college, which is weird. Um, I still have my job because, as it turns out, I was half decent at it, at least I think so. Um, but I have all my motivation back, and I have that fire that I was missing over the summer to get back into creating all this free content for you to enjoy on my site. So that leads me here. The second season of the Sportsball.com podcast, I'm preparing to have at least one episode a week, each week on Tuesday, covering all the latest from the NBA, the MLB, the NFL, and, well, really all things interesting in the world of sports and anything else that I find to be particularly interesting. Um, So, yeah, the podcast will come out once a week. uh, And I know what you're thinking. Oh, good. That's very ambitious, Jackson. But hold your horses. There's still more. The podcast will not stop the flow of the weekly NFL column that's posted every Tuesday afternoon and appropriately titled Tuesday Afternoon Football. Yes, I think that's a very creative title. I thought it was pretty funny, actually. Um, the NBA season will also be kicking off on Tuesday, or, well, tonight when you, when you hear this, because I'll be posting it on Tuesday. Um, so there'll be the return of all my recaps of Warriors games in a new and more interesting way, hopefully, uh, along with columns about interesting storylines across the league. And then I'll be throwing in some baseball content as the World Series approaches, free agency stuff, and not from time to time. But there won't be too much of that right now for reasons I'll explain later on the podcast. Um, yeah, and there will also be more creative projects in the future, so uh, stay tuned for, to the podcast for details on potential fun that may arise on other mediums. I'll leave it at that, because who knows if actually anything's going to happen. But um, with that all being said, let's just jump right into it. And what we're going to start with is the NFL, because some of this past week's action was crazy, and what I want to start with was the game between Tom Brady and Patrick Mahomes, and that game was the Patriots versus the Chiefs. This was the most exciting game of Week 6 between the then-undefeated Kansas City Chiefs and the almighty New England Patriots. This game was heralded as a clash of the Titans, a potential passing of the torch, and oh boy, did it live up to that fucking hype. In fact, I think saying it lived up to the expectations might be an understatement. This game was fucking phenomenal and was without a doubt the most fun and exciting game since week one. And I don't even know if I can really like, (laughs) I don't know if it was really the most exciting game 
since week one because I think it might have been the most exciting game all year, but I thought that game in week one when Aaron Rodgers overcame the most dominant single half of defensive football by an individual ever from Khalil Mack to win on one leg. And uh, week one was very impressive. And if you read my column from that week, you'll know that. <laughs> um, but that's besides the point. The matchup on last night or well on, on Sunday, it had it all. It featured the greatest quarterback of all time, Tom Brady, versus a young quarterback who many consider to be the most exciting young player in the league in Patrick Mahomes. It had the greatest, most prolific coach of all time in Bill Belichick and perhaps the most innovative offense or offensive coach in the history or uh, in the last two decades in Andy Reid. It also featured the most explosive offense that I've ever seen in the NFL in this year's Chiefs. And then it also featured the death by a thousand cuts offense of the New England Patriots. I mean, both are very appealing, but don't get me wrong, I really enjoyed the explosive offense of the Chiefs. Um, the game was incredible. <laughs> and I'm not going to bore you with the play-by-play of what happened, because that isn't very fun, because odds are you've heard about it, or you've read about it, or you've or you watched it. But how the game ended was the New England Patriots responded to a late Chiefs touchdown by Tyreek Hill by kicking a game-winning field goal to win the game 43-40. to that's right. That's basically encapsulating all of what the NFL is this year. A game finished with the final score of 43-40. to 40 Because, and this isn't necessarily a bad thing, but college football has successfully invaded the NFL. And what I mean by that is with the NFL's recent rule changes protecting offensive players like quarterbacks and wide receivers, like how you can't hit a quarterback really or put your weight on him, and you can't really touch a wide receiver until he's made, a, made the catch. Um, it's... Um, the game's being driven by offense more than ever. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, because, or at least for the players, because with more offense, that brings the young crowd back into the game that's being drawn away by other more exciting sports like the NBA. The offensive explosions allow for more action, and let's be honest, when was the last time you or another average visitor turned into an N- tuned into an NFL game with this, th- with this thought process? Oh, man. I want to watch the Bears and Jaguars play because their defenses are so dominant. That game will be so tightly contested and legit, and the final score will be 6-3. to three. <laughs> That's my dream. No one thinks like that. People like offense. People like explosive plays. They want to see high-flying plays and touchdowns that lead to fun celebrations. It increases ratings. It makes the game better on social media because you can clip together a bunch of fun offensive plays together in short videos. And it brings the NFL players one step closer from finally being to step out from underneath the helmet. And if you don't understand what I mean by that, I'll explain it right now. Of all the professional sports leagues, the NFL is among the worst in terms of player marketability. Individual player marketability. The MLB is obviously worse because they do an awful job at marketing or making their superstars recognizable. I mean, you could walk through a grocery store with Mike Trout in a, in a just a camouflage hat and you wouldn't recognize him. But the reason the NFL struggles with individual marketability is because the players wear a helmet and you can't see their face. You can't see their expressions on a play-to-play basis. So all in all, it's a good thing that the league is becoming more offensive-centric, more celebration celebration heavy i guess uh and we're just offenses are making more of a difference their offenses are driving the game because that draws in more of a crowd from social media and it gets players or gets fans like me attached to individual players like i want to tune in every week to watch patrick mahomes i've watched the chiefs games every week and they've only played my 49ers one time and that's saying something 
because generally I don't watch a whole lot of football. I'm more of an NBA baseball guy. But I feel the need. I got to see Patrick Mahomes. I got to see Jared Goff and these young stars because they're so explosive. I don't want to miss it. I don't. I don't want to see some clip on Instagram. I want to see it live, and that increases popularity of the game. It increases the fandom of, for individual players like the NBA has, and that eventually will drive up the revenue for the actual league, give more players bargaining power, and make their contracts more guaranteed money. So I know while defensive players might not might not like the fact that this league is becoming more offensive-centric, I know that Richard Sherman and other players have been very vocal about that. All in all, it's a good thing in terms of what will happen in the next CBA and them being able to get more guaranteed money. Anyways... Let's get back. Let's get back to what I was talking about. The Patriots and Chiefs game was incredible, and the Patriots won forty-three to forty. Tom Brady threw for three hundred forty yards and one touchdown to no picks, and Patrick Mahomes threw for three hundred and fifty-two yards, four touchdowns, and two picks, and one of those was a pick six. Um, he's now got four picks in the year in six games, which I mean, all in all, isn't too bad. But um, it's what happens when you take chances with an offense like what they have. Um, but Mahomes' weapons were on full display, too. I think they might be my pick to represent the AFC in this year's Super Bowl. This year, and this is obviously very early because the Super Bowl is in February, and this is October, and <laughs> week six just happened. But they might be my pick to represent the AFC in the Super Bowl because the weapons they have around Patrick Mahomes are insane. Tyreek Hill, who, by the way, is like 5'10", and their primary receiver, cut seven passes for 142 yards and three touchdowns. Three. I think he might be the fastest player I've ever seen on an NFL field. Like, p- players who can run down an, like a normal fast guy on a kick return, like what Devin McCourty did in that same game, which is, I don't know if you know, but I, on one drive, Devin McCourty ran down a, uh, a big, long field goal return by the Patriots. He couldn't keep up with Tyreek Hill. No one can. This guy's insane. He came into the league as what was supposed to be a kick return and punt return specialist, and somehow he'd become a wide receiver one. And it's not because he's got good hands. It's not because of height. It's because he's got blazing fucking speed. And the best part of all this actually has nothing to do with football. It's that I think his all the social media handles are just at Cheetah because that's how fast he is. And that's kind of hilarious. But it just shows how fast he is, and everyone knows it. No one really disputes that. But the other weapons that Patrick Mahomes has, like Travis Kelsey, um, Sammy Watkins, even DeAnthony Thomas, are all very solid offensive weapons. They've got uh, Conley. I can't remember his first name. Um, another very solid um, wide receiver. But what people forget about is they did ha- they do have the NFL's leading rusher from last season, and he was on full display against the Patriots in that game in Sunday night. He ran for 80 yards on the ground, and he got five. He caught five balls for 100 yards and a touchdown. So what's that, 180 total yards from scrimmage just on offense? I don't know. That sounds pretty good to me. Sounds like a top-tier running back in this league to me. Um, but he's got all the weapons in the world, but unfortunately the Chiefs lost. And I say unfortunately because I have jumped back on the Chiefs bandwagon after like a two-year hiatus because I love the Chiefs. Um, back during um, Jim Tom Sula and Chip Kelly's coaching um, coaching regime of the 49ers because they were just unwatchable. Um, so I made the Chiefs like my adopted um, redheaded stepchild. That's what it was. I don't know what it's. I don't know what the saying is, but 
they were like my adopted team. And then we got Kyle Shanahan and um, John Lynch, and then we got um, Jimmy G, and I'm just I was just full on 49ers. But this Chiefs team is insane, and they were undefeated heading into this week, but now they've lost. Now they're five and one. Um, I think five and one. Either five, I think four, five and one. I couldn't can't remember it's five and one four and one, but um, they've now lost, and they lost to the hands of the Patriots. So should. We as fans kind of start to like gently put our foot down on the brakes for the hype train or however you stop a, a train. <laughs> I actually don't know how you stop a train. I used to be obsessed with trains as like a little kid, but I've got no idea how they stop or go or anything other than like you put coal in the um, in the engine, even if they still do that. I don't know if they still make coal trains, but I'm getting <laughs> I'm getting sidetracked. Um, is it time to put the brakes on the hype train for the uh, for the Chiefs? Hell no. I am more invested in this team than ever before. Seeing them put up 40 points on the Patriots, even though the Patriots have this very so-so to below average defense, I'm still more invested than I've ever been. I'm higher on their offense abilities than I've been at any point this year, even after I saw Pat Mahomes just like rip the 49ers to shreds um, in week three. Um, I think their defense is going to be improved. Obviously, it can be improved. They're well coached on that side of the ball, and that's that can be seen because they're one of the best third down defenses in the league. Um, now the issue is their first, second, and fourth down defense isn't all that great. But what I'm really curious to see, and I think this is the real question right now with the Chiefs, is whether they're willing to leverage their future to win now. Will they be willing to part with draft picks in order to land good defensive players from the teams that have already fallen out of it? If I were them, I would make calls to the Cardinals for Patrick Peterson, to the 49ers for Richard Sherman, really any team that's out of the race, and you can get a solid player for like a second-round pick. You have the most explosive offense in the AFC. It looks like the Patriots' window could be maybe closing a little bit. Maybe. They have two losses already, but who knows? I'm not going to bet them out, uh, count them out at any time. But... You got to take whatever chances you can get to get like your foot in the door and crack open your window to become the reigning like champions of the AFC. You got to do whatever you can to win. Um, and on top of that, Patrick Mahomes can still be the most exciting offensive player in the league without being undefeated through six games. <laughs> um, he just didn't get the torch to a past in that game from Tom Brady, which I don't think should have been a narrative if we're being honest, but it was the narrative. So we got to live with it. Um, but here's the thing. He isn't Tom Brady. He isn't Joe Montana. He isn't Russell Wilson. Patrick Mahomes is unlike any quarterback we've ever seen. Yeah, he's mobile, but he's not Michael Vick. Yeah, he's got a really strong arm, but he isn't Aaron Rodgers. Yeah, he's got that combo of the mobility and the really strong arm, but he's not Colin Kaepernick. What he is, is professional football Stephen Curry. And this comparison has been made by people a lot smarter than me, so I'll keep this quick. But essentially, it boils down to this. Patrick Mahomes is emerging in this league at the perfect time. He's the perfect mix of arm talent, uh, mobility, awareness for today's college like NFL. He is this so, so very similar to when Steph rose to prominence in 2014 to 2015 and just what he is now. He's the greatest three-point shooter of all time that we've ever seen. And he's in the era where teams are now finally starting to take advantage of the three-point shot. 
Now in the NFL, teams are finally starting to take advantage of the RPO, more college offense, read option, motions, all that. And they've, they've got the best quarterback to be able to do that. He can run. He can throw for a mile. He's just the perfect combination. He's everything you want for today's NFL. That's who he is. He's the Stephen Curry of the NFL. Uh, is that part of the reason he's so exciting that you, uh, to me, like that comparison is so easily like easily seen or easily made? Is that why he's so exciting to me and many other football fans like that, or football fans that are like being drawn to the NFL to watch those games specifically for Mahomes from the NBA? Maybe, but any, he's becoming one of the leagues, <laughs> if not if he's not already, the brightest stars that they have, and he's what this is his second year. I think he's fantastic. Um, Anyways, I got sidetracked. What I wanted to say about this game were these three things. One, the Kansas City Chiefs are not unbeatable regardless of how good their offense is. Two, Patrick Mahomes and his offensive weapons are the most exciting offense I think this league has ever seen. And three, Tom Brady and Bill Belichick have already overcome their early season doubters to remind the league that their grip on the AFC East remains as tight as ever. I mean, seriously, they are fucking white-knuckling the division. And if you don't know what white-knuckling is, it's when you grip something so hard you can see the whites of your knuckles. I thought that was pretty self-explanatory, but for those of you who don't get it, there's that. And what I mean by their early season doubters is I think they started off the season 2-1, and one, and they lost... Um, did they lose week 1? No, they won week 1, I think, against the Texans, but they lost another game, and they lost to the Rams. And then they signed Josh Gordon from the Browns, or they traded for him from the Browns, which isn't necessarily that significant. It's just like marking the time. Um, and they're undefeated since then. What are they? Three and two? No, four and two. They didn't have a bye week yet. But yeah, they're back on top of the AFC East. Um, I don't have any any. I don't have any ability to envision the Dolphins, Jets, or uh, or the Bills competing anytime this year. In fact, if I were the Dolphins, I might make a move. Try to get some draft picks from the Chiefs for some pieces on my defense because they have some. I'd try to get that uh, middle linebacker they have, Kiko Alonso, if if that's even possible. But I don't know. Anything's really fucking possible in the NFL because anyone can be traded at any time. And that moves me to the next thing I wanted to say because there are a couple things I wanted to discuss from this last week that weren't the Chiefs and Patriots. So let's talk about this. What I was saying, how no one in the NFL is really untradeable. Let's talk about John Gruden and the fact that his second tenure with the Raiders now is a fucking disaster. And we're only six weeks into his 10-year, $100 million guaranteed contract. We are six weeks into the year, and the Oakland Raiders are now 1-5. in They're mostly healthy and by that, I mean they aren't missing any major players for injury-related reasons. I mean, they're missing the next Lawrence Taylor for non-injury-related reasons, but that's because the, John Gruden and the Raiders' brain trust decided that they didn't want him on their team anymore, so they traded him to a team that actually wanted him because he's the best defensive player in all of football. Um, it's, a, it's a travesty, but he was traded. Khalil Mack was traded. Um, but that should have been fine for the Raiders. They could have still been able to make some impact in this league because when John Gruden was hired, it was for his offense, which was supposed to be his specialty. 
That offense is in the middle of the pack. Literally. It's the 15th ranked offense in the league in yards per game. They're 11th in the league in passing yards per game, but they're 24th in the league in rushing yards per game, which is a little strange because John Gruden was supposed to bring back like old school like grounded pound football because he hasn't played, coached in the league in 10 years and that's what they were doing when he left. Um, but they can't do it. John Gruden was signed to a 10-year contract this offseason after being out of the league and on ESPN for 10 years. And this deal all happened because Mark Davis, the owner of the Raiders, needed to drum up excitement for their upcoming move to Vegas in two years. Because apparently a young core of Amari Cooper, Derek Carr, and Khalil Mack weren't enough. Um, but yeah, the offensive quote-unquote guru, that is John Gruden, has been awful. He's been unable to fix Derek Carr and make him look like it's 2016 again. He traded away the best defensive player in the NFL to the Chicago Bears for next to nothing. And now, after dropping to 1-5, he's shopping Amari Cooper and Carl Joseph. Those are two first-round picks from the last like four years. A stud-wide receiver who's been kind of hit or miss these last two years, but had over 1,500 yards receiving both his first two seasons. And Carl Joseph, their starting safety. Those are two first-round pixie shopping. I'm sorry, I'm not even a Raiders fan. In fact, I couldn't care less about this team. But seriously, what in the flying fuck is going on with John Gruden and the brain trust up there? This isn't how you build a contending team. You had a franchise cornerstone. You had two of them. You have, you have a quarterback who's viewed as a franchise quarterback, but you can't seem to put him in the right spots. You have a solid young wide receiver on a rookie contract, and now you're going to trade him? I mean, seriously, what the fuck? He's constructed the oldest roster in the NFL. He went out and signed Jordy Nelson, who'd been cut by the Packers, and he went out and signed Doug Martin, who'd been cut by the Buccaneers. Doug Martin hadn't done anything in three seasons, and Jordy Nelson was cut because he's old. I'm sorry, and now he's trying to sell some of these guys for used parts, too? I'm sorry to break the news here, John, but outside of these young players that you are now shopping, no one would want any of these old players with loads of miles on them that aren't good, and you probably shouldn't have signed in the first place. This whole Gruden debacle has turned the Raiders back into a joke. In the span of two years... They went from being the team that looked like the future of the AFC with the best young core in the entire NFL with Derek Carr, Khalil Mack, and Amari Cooper. And now they're about to be the fucking laughingstock, if they aren't already, of the league. And also, they're about to be homeless. That's right. They don't have a place to play next year because they won't be in Oakland and the Vegas Arena won't be done yet. It's all just a giant shit show. I feel bad for Raiders fans, even though I'm a, I'm a 49ers fan, so I really don't give a shit about you like 90% of the time. But still, this is fucked up. I think personally Mark Davis should be forced to sell the team because he's, I think, incapable of making smart business decisions there. He doesn't actually have enough money to own the team. And he's. it's very clear he's reliant on the league's revenue checks to own the team, to pay the players, and that's why they don't really pay their guys. It's speculated that that's why they traded Khalil Mack, because they couldn't pay him what he was truly worth with that record-setting contract that he received. Um, but anyways, 
The team is a laughing stock again, and it's a total joke. And I don't like the Raiders again, but having a single team be a laughing stock in a, in a sport where there are only 16 games for each team a year, it's kind of a shit show. It's kind of something you don't want. I mean, I made fun of the Cleveland Browns for the last like 10 years for being incompetent, but they look like they're exciting now. You kind of knew that someday they'd get back because they were drafting so high over and over and over again. With the Raiders, you don't get that feeling. You get the feeling they're going to be stuck in this black abyss forever because they're just dumb and incompetent and can't stop stepping on their own dick. Uh, um, yeah, that's probably enough Enough talk on the Raiders. Um, another thing I want to talk about, and this is the second to last thing I want to say for the NFL, was that it appears that Eli Manning, the former elite quarterback in the NFL, is done. D-O-N-E, done. And I don't think there's a whole lot to break down here, to be honest. That statement I just had is pretty clear. When you watch the New York Giants, it is painfully clear that it is time to move on from Eli Manning. While his completion percentage looks good and and uh, his yards per attempt look good, there's a reason for all that. All he does is throw checkdowns and let his explosive players do the work for him. He doesn't have the arm strength or accuracy to throw the ball downfield anymore, and other teams and his own players have taken notice. I mean, Odell Beckham Jr. even had an interview before last week's game <coughs> where he criticized Eli Manning for not being able to throw downfield or not having any mobility in the NFL today where you kind of fucking need those things. Um, OBJ has one touchdown through six games. And Eli Manning has only thrown six touchdowns through six games with four picks. I mean, that ain't great. That ain't it, Chief. The entire Giants offense right now has very little to do with Eli Manning. The entire offense is Saquon Barkley, their rookie running back. They pass to him, hand the ball off to him, and rely on his all or very little approach on plays to help drive them down the field and score. He's on pace to rush and receive for over 1,000 yards. Um, Oh, I just said all or very little approach. I'm not trying to belittle him. I'm just... What he is, he's kind of like an all-or-nothing running back. You're either getting like a massive explosive play or you're getting a play for very few yards. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's what Adrian Peterson was for a lot of his career. You're getting like a really explosive 80-yard touchdown, 50-yard touchdown, 45-yard touchdown, or 30-yard touchdown with a truck stick in the middle, or you're getting like a two-yard carry. It's like you're getting one or the other. There's not much of an in-between there, and that's fine. So Saquon Barkley is a stud. There's no getting me wrong there. I'm just pointing out what he is. Um... And yeah, Saquon Berkeley's good, and he's driving their offense. But I think that down the line, they are probably going to end up regretting the fact that they didn't draft one of the several quarterbacks that were available at that number two spot in the draft instead of Saquon. They could have had Sam Darnold, Josh Rosen, Josh Allen, really anybody in the draft except for Baker Mayfield because he was going number one. And I mean, I guess they can take someone this year because even if they do win a couple games, most of the teams in the top 10 of the league are going to already have their quarterbacks, so they're not going to take one. But you're still going to have to have them develop on the roster, and that's going to be just leaving them wasting t- the prime of Odell's, Odell Beckham Jr.'s career, wasting the most explosive years of Saquon Barkley's career, while this new young quarterback has to develop and most likely will develop under another year of Eli Manning. And, of course, I don't want to sound like I'm just tearing down Eli and the Giants for keeping him. I understand why they're keeping him. They're hanging on to the past with the QB who brought them two Super Bowls, both against the Patriots. But now it looks like it's time to cut the cord and move on. And trust me, 
this is a problem with the Giants in the NFL and the Giants in the MLB. And as much as it hurts me in the MLB, and I'll never, I'll, I'll never be upset with the Giants for hanging on to the players that won Super World Series with them. I understand that in the NFL, you kind of got to cut the cord quicker. I don't think there's a sport where you can go from just great to just nothing as fast as you can in the NFL. I mean, MLB is a quick second in that list, but the NFL, is a it's the clear number one there. Um, the good news is, though, for the Giants is it appears they're going to be in the top five of the draft, and all the other teams that are going to be picking up there with them already have their QBs. I mean, the 49ers got Jimmy G. The Raiders got Derek Carr if they don't trade him. The Bills got Josh Allen. The Cardinals got Josh Rosen, and there are others. So odds are, even if they're like pick number eight, they could get a very solid quarterback. They could potentially get the best quarterback in the draft because none of these other teams need a quarterback. Um, And yeah, that's all I want to talk about, the Eli Manning stuff from the Giants. And then the last thing with the NFL is this, and it'll explain what I talk about in the podcast going forward this season. My beloved Jimmy G tore his ACL against the Chiefs in week three, and he's out for the season. So, until he returns next year, there is no team that plays in San Francisco. The, San Fr- the team that was formerly known as the San Francisco 49ers, it doesn't exist. We are not acknowledging them. It, they're, we're, <laughs> I hope they go 1-15 and get the number one pick and get the best pass rusher available or get some like stud defensive back. But we're not talking about them because they should lose every game. And that's that. But now that NFL is out of the way, let's jump right into the good stuff because the NBA starts tomorrow or, well, tonight when this is uploaded. So I figured we should play a little game. I'm going to run through all 30 teams and their over-unders for the season and predict how they will do in a couple's quick sentences. And for those of you who don't know, the over-unders are given by casinos and gambling places in Vegas and are generally pretty accurate representations of how many games any given team will win that season. Um, And with that being said, let's get to it. Oh, um, and these are the current odds at Westgate, or at least the current odds of like 11 a.m. this morning, and I'm recording this at 10.30 at night. Um, And I'm going to start with the worst teams in the league and get to the best for last. So here we go. The Atlanta Hawks, the over-unders at 23 wins. I'm taking the under. You can't have it both ways, Hawks fans. If Trey Young really is the next Steph Curry, then you got to be prepared to win very little games in his first year like Steph did. Steph won 26 games with a better roster. The Hawks got over-under 23. They're going to win less. They might be the worst team in the East. The Kings, over-under 26 wins, way under. This is the absolute worst team in the NBA. Um, and maybe Marvin Bagley will look like he'd be deserved to pick up he picked up Luka Doncic, but I don't think so. I don't think he was the right pick. They're going to win less than 26 games. The New York Knicks, 27 and a half games. I'm taking the under. Knicks and their fans are all still just all talk. And and what they are doing this and what they will be doing this whole season is praying at night for Kevin Durant to get a wild hair and join them next year. But until then, the trash. I mean, as a consolation prize, they're in New York. So that's fine. The Phoenix Suns, 29, win, 29 wins for the over. I'm taking the over. It is time for Devin Booker to take this team somewhere after signing his inst- extension. I think they get close to 500. That means they get close to 41 wins. Um, the Chicago Bills, their over-under is 30. I take the over. They're very young, very fun, and I think this team has a chance to be a lesser version of last year's Philadelphia 76ers. The Orlando Magic, 
30 and a half games is the over under. I'm taking the over, or I'm taking the under. I, this team is just not going to be very good, and this sucks because I do enjoy it. Mag- I do enjoy the magic, um, but at least Aaron Gordon and Mobamba should be fun. <laughs> I mean, I think they could get another uh, a top pick next year, and then and then be set with a, a solid trio for years to come. The Cleveland Cavaliers over under is at 31.5. I'm taking the over, and please, please, please be a good team even after LeBron left. It would be hilarious. It would shatter the narratives of all the talking heads on every episode, on every uh, sports talk network. It'd be my favorite thing. And also, they are 1,000% winning more than 32 games this year. Easily. They play in the East. I think we're forgetting that. Um, Yeah, the next team, the Brooklyn Nets, over-under 32. I'm taking the under. Brooklyn Nets? More like Brooklyn Bet everything you have on the under because this team's going to be awful and they finally have control of their first round pick again so they have no incentive to win memphis grizzlies over under 33 and a half i'm taking the over the return of mike conley after nearly two years and marcus soul should warrant at least 35 wins the charlotte hornets their over under is 35 and a half i'm taking the under losing dwight howard can be a good thing sometimes for decent for like certain teams this is not one of those times this team ain't it, Chief. The Dallas Mavericks over under 34, and I'm taking the over one last time to the playoffs for Dirk. This is Dirk's most likely last season. You can do it, Dallas. I believe. Do it for Dirk and Harry B. Los Angeles Clippers, they're over under 35 and a half. I'm taking the under. I don't think this team should try to be great this year. I think they have some solid pieces, but they can easily build through the draft and also sell some of their assets like Patrick Beverly or Lou Williams. Um, the Detroit Pistons, 35 and a half is the over-under. I'm taking the over. I think Lob City East will make the playoffs, and I have no reason to believe otherwise. Um, the Timberwolves, their over-under is 42. I'm taking the over because as long as Jimmy Butler stays, they're a very solid team. But once he's gone, this team's going to tank. So it all depends on how long he's there. But I'm taking the over. The Portland Trailblazers, their over-under is 42 as well. I'm taking the over because the Kirkland, Bland, Kirkland brand Splash Bros., will podcast and SoundCloud rap their way to a lower seed in the playoffs. But no matter how hard CJ McCollum tries for Jennifer, they are not winning anything in the playoffs. The San Antonio Spurs, their over-under is 42.5. I'm taking the over. DeMar DeRozan and LaMarcus Aldridge are about to make teams suffer from from 12 to 15 feet away from the hoop. Their mid-range game is deadly in a league where you need to make threes, but that's besides the point. But really, I have no reason to believe that a Greg Popovich coach team with two All-Stars is going to finish anywhere near 500. They're going to be above it. If I had to guess, I'd say they're pushing 50 wins. Um, the Miami Heat, their over-under is 43.5. I'm taking the under. I don't understand why this over-under was as high as it was in the first place. I don't think this team is that good. Um, and I think this is just going to be like a nice farewell tour for Dwayne Wade. Um, the over-under for the New Orleans Pelicans, 45.5. I'm taking the under. I think this team will regress back to the mean after their scorching hot end of the season last year. The Washington Wizards, over-under is 46. I'm taking the under. This team is all bark and no bite, and this will be the final season of the John Wall-Bradley Beal experience, and they added Dwight Howard to that mix. That's like adding vinegar to an already exploding baking soda volcano. That's not working. The Denver Nuggets over-under is 47.5. I'm taking the under. 
They're absolutely, they play absolutely no defense, and that doesn't exactly work out here in the Wild West, but they will make the playoffs. The Indiana Pacers over-under is 48. I'm taking the over. I think Victor Oladipo is a rich man's Russell Westbrook, and there's nothing you can do to change my mind. Plus, they impressed me in the playoffs last year, and I think they got better. Um, the Los Angeles Lakers, their over-under is 48. For LeBron and the baby Lakers, Lakers and the rest of this quote-unquote meme team, a top seed is just a pipe dream. They're going to be a bottom four seed if they make the playoffs at all, which I think is highly in question. The Milwaukee Bucks, 48.5 is their over-under. I'm taking the over. More like Milwaukee win a couple bucks from betting the over. Am I right? I'm just kidding. Um, another year of Giannis progressing. They got a new coach, Mike Budenholzer. He won 60 games with the Buck or with the uh, Hawks a couple years ago, and that's no mean feat. So I'm taking the over. Um, the Oklahoma City Thunder, their over-under is 48 and a half. I'm taking the under because the endless pursuit of triple doubles does not result in top seeds. Sorry. Um, the Utah Jazz, their over-under is 50. I'm taking the over, and I'm taking like way over. I think Donovan Mitchell and the defensive buzzsaw that is the Utah Jazz will cut through 14 out of 15 teams in this Western Conference. I guess 13 out of 15 because I can't include Jazz. Um, the Philadelphia 76ers, their over-under is 54. I'm taking the under. Uh, I think they're going to regress to the mean after last season's hot finish, kind of like the Pelicans did. Um, but I think there's only one more year of trusting the process. I think after this year, they're going to explode and be atop the conference for years to come. Um, the Toronto Raptors, they're over under 55 and a half, and I'm taking that over. The king is gone. I was going to say long live the king, but it doesn't make sense because they didn't like LeBron. Long live Kawhi Leonard, their MVP defensive player of the year candidate that they picked up in exchange for DeMar DeRozan this summer. 55 and a half, taking like... I think they win like 57 games. Um, the Rockets, their over-unders at 57. I'm taking the under. This is the opposite of addition by subtraction. This is more like subtraction by addition when you add Carmelo Anthony. Because you got to lose Trevor Reese. you got to lose Luke Richard and Bob Mute, and they lost a defensive assistant coach. This team is going to be a mess defensively, but they're still going to make the playoffs. This is not a top-two seed. The Boston Celtics, their over-unders 59.5, and, and I'm taking the over. I have to. I don't want to, but I have to. This team has too much talent to hit the under. But if they do, I think that'd be hilarious because everyone's hyping them up so much, including me. This team should be the favorite in the East, but I think eventually the Raptors are going to beat them when it, when it matters most in the playoffs. And then finally, the team we knew would be here at the end, the number one seed, the best team in the NBA, top to bottom, the Golden State Warriors. They're over under 61 and a half. I'm taking the over. Because this one fact alone, the Warriors were 41-10 and 10 when Steph played last year, and he is healthy once again, so this really should be easy money. Um, <laughs> yeah. Whew. All right. Those were the 30 over-unders for this NBA season. So now, really quick, let's project the NBA awards. Um, I think the MVP is going to be Kawhi Leonard. Uh, this award, while being the most prestigious NBA regular season award, is still mostly narrative-driven, like Russell Westbrook with the triple-doubles, Houston with the one seed last year. Um, um, it's still mostly narrative-driven. Uh, but if he can get the Raptors over the hump and into that number one seed, then this award should be his to lose. 
Um, for Rookie of the Year, I'm taking Luka Doncic with the Mavericks. Uh, his experience overseas doesn't make him feel like an actual rookie. He's coming off a year in which he was the MVP of the second best league in the world. So I think he should win Rookie of the Year in like a runaway landslide. It shouldn't be that close. Um, defensive Player of the Year, I'm taking Rudy Gobert. He's the anchor of what should be the best defense in the NBA this year, um, along with the top seed in the West. I think it's a perfect storm for Rudy Gobert. Uh, he's in the Jazz, in case you didn't know. Um, and then for sixth man of the year, I'm taking Dennis Schroeder uh, with the Thunder. I think it's going to be a nice change of pace for him off the bench with the Thunder. Uh, I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say that the team might actually play better when he's running the point rather than Russell Westbrook, at least from a numbers perspective. Um, and then for coach of the year, I'm taking Quinn Snyder with the Jazz because I am incredibly high on the Jazz this year. I think they will beat out the Houston Rockets for the second best seed in the West, earning Quinn Snyder the Coach of the Year award in the process. Um, my NBA Finals prediction is this. I think the Golden State Warriors will completely three-peat against the Toronto Raptors in five games. But how will they get to there? They will get there by beating the Houston Rockets in six games in the Western Conference Finals. I'm, I'm wavering the number of games there. It could be a sweep in my head. In my head, it's a sweep. In my in my head, it's a one-game series. Um, and then the Eastern Conference Finals is going to be the Celtics and Raptors. I think that series goes seven, but Kawhi is dominant in Game 7, and they make it to the Finals. Um, and now, for the last piece of predicting this upcoming season, um, I wanted to come at, come at it with these five hot, like, medium hot takes. These aren't, like... The last dab, um, hot ones, hot takes, but like these are like mild hot takes. Um, and here we go. Number one, LeBron James will not finish in the top three of MVP voting, and this will be the first year we see a decline in his overall numbers and statistics. This is the beginning of the end. He did not come to Los Angeles for basketball. He came here for business. Um, number two, after all his freaking out at Timberwolves practice last week, Jimmy Butler won't finish this year with the Wolves because Tibbs has no incentive to rush to trade him, but he will not get he will get traded eventually, but not to the Raptors or the Rockets. Number 3, the Toronto Raptors or uh, not to the Heat or the Rockets is what I meant. Um, the Raptors for number 3 will acquire a better NBA star at the deadline than the Los Angeles Lakers will. Number 4, Anthony Davis will not be traded during the season, and if he is, it will not be to one of the teams like Boston or Golden State that everyone thinks it will be. And number four, the Portland Trailblazers will e trade either Damian Lillard or C.J. McCollum by the trade deadline to a team out east. <sighs> that was a lot. Um, Jesus Christ, it's 1045. <laughs> um, I don't know why I, started, why I recorded this so late. I, uh... This whole starting the podcast back up, I just did it like, I didn't like plan it or anything. I scheduled a place to record it last night, and I scheduled it at 10 p.m. because I wanted to make sure I had an adequate outline for it. Um, oh, man, I'm fucking tired. <laughs> um, but anyways, this is the last thing I wanted to talk about on the podcast this week. Um, it's the last thing with the NBA. I want to talk about LeBron James and all the overreaction to him being in Los Angeles. And I mean, I guess, I guess you couldn't really call, call it all right overreactions right now. Or maybe I'm just using the wrong words. 
What I really want to talk about is the propaganda machine that is running wild right now at all the major sports networks like ESPN or Fox Sports 1. Um, now, there isn't anything inherently wrong for talking about him as much as they do. They're hyping up the Lakers as much as they are. I mean, I get it. They're a big market team. It's just like Fox um, hypes up the Dallas Cowboys even though they're a mediocre team. It's because they're the biggest market. The Lakers are a global market. They have the biggest international fan base. You hype them up. You get more viewers. It's easy. I get it. It's business. Here's the thing. I feel like you're doing everyone a disservice at this point. I get it. For a long time, LeBron James was the best player in the NBA. But from a statistical perspective, he isn't anymore. From a narrative perspective, with certain talking heads, he is. Because they don't like how the Warriors have changed things. And this isn't my bias. I'm just talking statistically. He isn't as efficient as the top guards in the league like Stephen Curry. He isn't as versatile offensively as players like Kevin Durant. He isn't even a good defender anymore. The way people talk about him joining the Lakers, it would make you think that he's going to join the Miami Heat again. Except when when he's joining them this time, it's celebrated instead of like vitriol and hate. I mean, let's be honest. Let's be really, really honest here. Deep down, we know what's going to happen. And this isn't me being biased. This is just like, I'm telling you, this is going to happen. The Lakers are going to start slow, like most LeBron-led teams do. They don't have shooters. So they're going to try to use this run-and-gun, fast-paced offensive attack, which, again, is the exact opposite of everything LeBron James has done in his career to his point, and this is his 16th year. Let's think about it in terms of your own life here. If you've been doing something the exact same for your entire life and then do the exact opposite all of a sudden, do you expect that to stick or even work? No, you wouldn't. And you shouldn't expect anything from this Lakers team like that. The Lakers are nothing but non-shooters. Their only real center is JaVale McGee, who is one accident prone, two, a liability on defense, and three, he doesn't play for an extended period of time. He literally uses an inhaler on the sideline. So, what's going to happen? You know what's going to happen, and I'll tell you so we're all on the same page here. I think, no, I know that three weeks into this year, we all know that the Lakers are going to be skidding. They will lose a couple games in a row. LeBron will become visibly frustrated. He might even subtweet somebody, make an Instagram post with like the mood with the Arthur Fist again. And then his fans are going to be clamoring for a trade or claiming that he has, quote, no help. I mean, why pretend like any of this is going to be different in year 16? I mean, this is a quote that I've used several times, and it might not even be a quote, it's just a saying. It goes, second verse, same as the first. It's just when something happens over and over and over again. It's just a habit. You know something's going to stay the same. You know nothing's going to change. It's the 16th verse. There's no bridge. (laughs) There's no chorus. It's just the same verse over and over and over again. It's like that Vanilla Ice song. Do you know any of the other lyrics other than the the core one that's Ice Ice Baby? When I hear that song, I don't know any other words besides Ice Ice Baby. 
It's the same thing here. It's the same narrative every year. LeBron comes in. His team starts slow. He has no help. They make a trade. It doesn't work. He loses. And all of a sudden, he's still the GOAT. And next year, it happens again. Let's cut the shit. We know what's happening. Um, and I mean, I think the sports world would be a lot better at this point if we like all universally understood that what LeBron James is right now is basically a more talented version of Russell Westbrook. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but here's what it is. It's martyr ball. He plays martyr ball. He stuffs a stat sheet. He loses. Somehow the goalposts for greatness have been moved so much for him because people want to be able to tell their kids, I watched the greatest player of all time. I saw I saw him do these incredible things. So they moved the goalposts to be like, oh, he made eight straight finals. That's better than winning six. Oh, he averaged a triple-double in the finals in those five games. Oh, but he lost, he lost in five games. Oh, but he averaged a triple-double. We're moving the goalposts time and time and time again. So much so that even now, people have kind of like twisted and turned this way into thinking that losing in a certain way, in a certain way that LeBron does, is somehow better than winning in any other way that anybody else does. He can't lose. I mean, seriously, how many people in the real world get credit for losing more than they do winning? I mean, LeBron? Is that it? I mean, I don't want to get political here, but like Donald Trump? Is that it? Are those the only two guys? Be, that's it. Because the whole concept here doesn't make any sense. I mean, I don't know. I don't know if you've seen LeBron James's show on, on HBO. It's called The Shop. It's like basically like it's a talk show. He gets a bunch of athletes together, or athletes and celebrities, most of the time African-American in a barbershop, and they talk about certain issues. And there's they've been two episodes, and I think it's pretty interesting. But I wanted to bring up this little tidbit from episode two really quick. Episode two came out this weekend, or on last Friday. Victor Oladipo appeared on that show and said something along these lines. When I was in OKC, it was a rough time because we weren't that good a team. The story was the same every game. Russell Westbrook was great. He got a triple-double. He was averaging a triple-double, but he has no help. He said that he would be playing in the games and see the reporters writing all that and be like, damn, I can't, I can't believe these people really feel like that. They're writing this as I'm playing, and I'm looking at them right now. And he talked about how hard it was for him. I mean, I encourage you to watch the actual clip because I'm obviously paraphrasing. And if you haven't seen it, it was very interesting because there's obviously more to that. But something else was very interesting about that when you watched the show. As soon as he started talking about that and when people, when he specifically said that people were commentating on the team saying Russell Westbrook had no help... The camera cut to LeBron sitting there uncomfortably because he knows he has he understands that that's the same way people treat his teammates and he doesn't he doesn't he doesn't stop it. He understands, but it's the only way to advance and move the goalposts even more. It's the classic martyr ball call and response. And I know I've I've used this term a lot today, but in case you don't get it, I'm using this term martyr ball to describe a player who stuffs the stat sheet so they can't be blamed for any losses. They do everything they can to look good individually and avoid the actual blame on the team. I don't know. 
I just imagine I'm not the only one who finds that the LeBron hype train for him going to L.A. is a little annoying at this point. We're all getting so excited about, oh, he's going to make Brandon Ingram the player he can truly be. Oh, he's going to play so well alongside Lonzo Ball. Oh, Josh Hart was a summer league MVP along with LeBron James, a regular NBA regular season and finals MVP. That's going to be great. Oh, him with Kyle Kuzma, a good scorer, potentially off the bench. Fantastic. As if we don't know these guys are going to be blamed for him having no help and traded for like DeMar DeRozan at the trade deadline. We know what's going to happen. I'm tired of seeing all the reporters being like, oh, this team's going to make the playoffs because LeBron James is the best player in the league. It's just that's a narrative and it's a false narrative because the numbers don't back it up. Um, <laughs> I don't know. But hey, I, I don't want to just ramble about this. And I've been talking for a long time tonight, especially for the first episode of this season. So I think I'm going to cut you loose. Oh, man. <laughs> oh, it's, it's so good to be back. Um, but really quick, before I end this episode, I wanted to make sure I let you know about a, a feature of this podcast for season two. If you have a question, a hot take, a comment, really anything you want to say for me in the podcast... Send an email to sportsballmailbag at gmail.com. That's sportsball with a Z, S-P-O-R-T-Z-B-A-L-L, mailbag at gmail.com. And you can be featured on the podcast. I'll answer your questions, respond to any hot take videos you have. If you want to send me a clip of you spouting up a hot take or an audio clip of you spouting up a hot take, I'm all for it. Just send it to sportsballmailbag at gmail.com and you'll be featured on the podcast. Anyways, that was episode one of season two of the sportsball.com podcast. I hope you enjoyed. I hope you enjoyed this fantastic week of sports that's coming up and I will talk to you again next Tuesday. Later.